Do you find listening to your friends' stories into motherhood uplifting and empowering? Brought to life by maternal health company AMA & Co., AMA Need a Minute provides mothers the space and the minute to share their real and raw experiences as well as their learnings. So pour yourself a glass of wine or tea, throw in that fifth load of laundry for the week that will sit in the dryer, and join in to celebrate, commiserate, and build a new kind of community. Welcome back to another episode of Amanita Minute. Today, we're joined by a mom named Christine, who is a clinical dietitian. Hi, Christine, and welcome. Hey, Margaret. Thank you for having me tonight. I'm so happy to have you on as you're going to provide a medical practitioner's POV. Can you take a minute to introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm currently a clinical dietitian at a level two trauma center in Stanford, Connecticut. Um, I'm certified nutrition support. Um, and I am also a mom with two kids. I have a son named Cameron. He's going on seven years old. And then my daughter, Charlotte, is going on four. Wow. Uh, so seven and five years out. Do you remember your birth stories? And would you like to share them? I think every mom always remember their birth stories. I mean, everyone is unique in their own ways and their journeys are completely different, even though, you know, people may think that, you know, their birth stories are, are very similar. So, you know, with my first birth with Cameron, everything's uneventful. Everything's great. Um, <laughs> I was, you know, actually my water broke about 93, uh, 39 weeks when I was at work. Mm-hmm. And luckily my ob was in the hospital where I work at. So I kind of just gave him a call and said, oh, come on by, let me check. And then they checked, oh, so your your water, it is your, your water, it broke. And why don't you walk yourself to labor and delivery? So I, <laughs> so I literally went back to my office and picked up my things and, and said, you know, goodbye to my coworkers and said, oh, see you guys later. I'm going labor delivery. So that was sort of the highlight. Did anyone of my- escort you? Like, no. did anyone, was it? Any- no. <laughs> Well, Not even an escort. Forget the wheelchair. My coworkers did because at the time I had my laptop, I had all these things. They're like, "You sure you're okay?" I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm <laughs> fine." You know, because you're. I mean, I'm sure I was having contractions, which they say I was, but I, I didn't feel a thing, and I was, you know, happy to just get out of work and just go have my baby. Yeah. Yes. So of course my you know my contractions weren't that close enough, so they had to uh, induce me and. You know, people have different experiences with induction. So that's a, a whole other story. But otherwise, everything is pretty uneventful, nothing mm-hmm. crazy. So your body responded positively to the induction. Yes. It didn't become too overwhelming in any point. No, no, no. No, not, not at all. I had a great team. I trusted my providers. Um, I trusted my nurses. And it, it, it's sort of a perk working at a hospital, even though they may not be the staff that you work with from a day to day. But when they hear that you're one of them, I feel like I'm being taken care of a little bit more. Yeah, I could see that, especially like a family kind of feel like, you know, yeah. she's Christine from floor six, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So so they kind of just, you know, gave me open arms. They, they guided me, all the nurses guided me. You know, I, I really didn't take any... Um, those those uh, birthing trainings or, you know, I, I didn't do any of that. So I just went in blindly. I had my baby and, and I left with my baby in my arms. Mm-hmm. Right. So really it, that was, you know, the birth of my first and with my second Charlotte, she was a completely different story where, you know, you would think with your second, you're prepared, you know exactly what to expect. Mm-hmm. She 
came in unexpectedly. I had to um, basically, I, I woke up in the middle of the night with a bleed about 30, close to 35 weeks. Mm-hmm. Of course, I called my OBGYN. I said, hey, what do I do? I said, oh, that's considered actually an emergency. So please get yourself to the emergency oh, wow. room. Was it a lot of blood or was it just like, it kind of was like a spot? Uh, no, it was not. It was like a, more like a gush. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, so I, I called and, you know, luckily it was contained, but they had to keep me there for observation for 48 hours. Mm-hmm. But at that moment I was like, oh, just nothing. And, you know, there's no more bleeding. I can go home. Mm-hmm. And at that moment they, they didn't let me go home. Actually, they wanted me to be on bed rest. They did work up on me. Um, and I was diagnosed with uh, placental previa. So what that means is your, your um, placenta is completely blocking the cervix mm-hmm. where it was supposed to move up as, as your baby grows during your pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So it was a complete blockage. And they said that the only, there's really no chance for it to move any further up at this point because at this point, I'm already 35 weeks. Yeah. So that, why don't you wait till 36 weeks? That's when um, baby's lungs are fully developed. They gave mm. me shots to kind of help my baby have a better outcome. Mm. Um, so I, I had a, re- a scheduled C-section at 36 weeks. Gotcha. And the placenta previa, at the 20-week scan, it's too early to tell if it's going to move. So there was no way they could have caught that before. At the time, I, they did tell me, yeah, it is still low. But because I don't have a history of it, my doctor was like, oh, it should, it should just move up. And to her, yeah. because I'm a healthy person, I don't have any past medical histories. I yeah. have uneventful you know, pregnancies, everything went the way it should be. She didn't think it was an issue. And by, yeah. I think your second scan was supposed to be like between 35 and 36. Yeah. I think I remember one at 36. Yeah. So I went in right before my, my next scan. Gotcha. Yeah. And I didn't even know placentas move around, to be honest. Um, I don't know why I just had the impression they're kind of like stuck to the side of your your uterus and they just hang out there. So you had the emergency, not emergency, but you had the scheduled C-section at week 36. Did your daughter have to go to the NICU? She did, actually. Um, she came in actually at a really good birth weight, um, just that she, her when they tried to feed her, her um, blood glucose went lower, her oxygen went lower. So they just mm-hmm. wanted to put her in the NICU for 48 hours just to observe her. But otherwise she was healthy. In your training of being a dietitian, do you have training towards like newborn care or is it focused on a specific age group? Like, did you know what was going on? Did you know the details of what was going on with her? No, not at all, actually. Um, so our training, we, we, the focus is really on what the, the nutrition needs of a person at a, at different stages of life. Mm-hmm. Um, unless my focus professionally is in the NICU or infant care, that type of population, most dietitians in this profession will not have adequate knowledge to really understand what is going on with your baby or yourself mm. at that time. So that is not my focus, you know, not, not my expertise in, in, in other words. I'm assuming she was cleared after a few weeks, right? Of being at the NICU. Oh yes. Okay. Very, Great. very so, much. So she, she thrived. Um, I really don't, didn't have much issues with her. Both my kids are healthy good eaters in general 
where my struggle really was, was postpartum. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, breastfeeding is something that people don't always talk about. You know, they, they say that is the best for your baby. And, and at the same time, also, you know, for a lot of families who are struggling financially, breastfeeding is a very economical way to feed your baby. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. it is a preferred way. And also I think it's, it's mutually beneficial. It, it helps the mother gain back their body, you know, mm-hmm. faster, quicker, they recover faster, quicker that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but really breastfeeding was just not my thing. You know, people mm-hmm. don't talk about, you know, your, your first baby, your milk doesn't come in for a few days. For me, mm-hmm. it was like almost a week it was four or five days. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. And my, my second, yes, it came in quicker, but still that's, that's because I had the previous experience of knowing, oh, I need to pump as soon as yeah. I can just to stimulate. Right. Yeah. So for, with, with camera, for example, he was just such an impatient baby that he couldn't wait. That It's just mm-hmm. so slow. And of course, you know, he had jaundice when he was little, so I had to put him back in the hospital for a few days to go under the, the light to, to mm-hmm. get rid of it. But, but that was also something that you don't think about when you don't feed enough to your baby, they are more likely to have jaundice. They can't clear mm-hmm. the um, bilirubin in your body. Oh, right? I see. Right. So that's also another sign that you're not, that your baby may, may not be eating as much as they should. So they make that call after you've already gone home to, from the hospital. Yes. So you're supposed to have, I forget the day, I th- I think day three or day four of life where you're supposed to go to your pediatrician mm-hmm. after that's, that's where they test your bilirubin mm-hmm. and his was, was pretty high. Mm. Yeah. So he was just such an impatient baby that I, I basically had to bottle feed him and mm-hmm. he got used to how fast the, the nipple flowed from the, from the bottle. Yeah. Right. I just couldn't get him back on my breast. Oh man. You know, after, I mean, I'm sure, you know, as a, as a mother, you know, you, you go through the emotions of, okay, what is the position? What is the baby like? There's, you know, obviously online, you can, you can YouTube, but there's so many different positions that you can do, but what, which yeah. one does your baby like? You have to figure yeah. that out. You have to go yeah. through, you know, the rawness of your nipple. You have all these creams yeah. next to your bed. You know, I have to go through all that despite the fact that he really didn't, you know, care for it because it's too slow. Yeah. Right. Um, so then I have to, you know, figure out, okay, I have to talk to myself and say, okay, this is, it's okay to give him bread to, to give him formula, right? I'll mm-hmm. pump as much as I can. I end up being exclusively pumping f- with him. Okay. So you, wait, so you didn't need the formula. I did. Cause I, I oh. didn't produce enough. Okay. So exclusively pumping as in like, you never had him on your breast. Right. Okay. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. So. And then with my second one, I was so like I was so prepared. I knew what to expect. I said, okay, the moment she gave birth, when the moment I get to my room, whenever I can, I, I'll start pumping to stimulate my milk, which that that really worked out really great for me. With my second is, you know, she she's a really slow eater. <laughs> she, <laughs> and you had a C section. I feel like that works against you in terms of like your body's timing because she was early. So you're you're, you may not have been ready to produce the milk. I think with the stimulation, it really didn't matter. There okay. are moms who, who gave birth, you know, when their babies are really preemie, like at 25 weeks or so, but they're able to stimulate their milk. 
Oh, wow. Okay. You know, so, so that's just your body's anatomy. It doesn't matter how early your the hormones are there. Yeah. So the moment you give birth, doesn't matter how, how early your baby is, mm. you will be able to produce milk. Mm. Right. So w- with Charlotte is the complete opposite where, you know, I, yeah, I was ready, but she just not a good eater. You know, she's such a slow, even till today, she's almost four. She takes her time at the dinner table, you know? So she's it's just personality wise. She's just not, not the person, I guess. Not, not hungry, person. not starving. Right. She's, she's yeah. never starving. She's a great eater too, but she's never, she, she snacks all day and she yeah. did that with the milk too. Yeah. My husband has this theory that because our first child starved for four days because I didn't have milk yet. He's always been efficient. Like when he's a newborn, he's not as efficient because they just take longer. But towards like maybe three months, four months, he started taking only 20 minutes to nurse. And then like after like, I think five or six months, he was taking 10 minutes to nurse. He was so efficient. Like he was clearing the boob in 10 minutes. It wasn't like leaving anything behind. So he's like, oh, you know, he's always because of that starving experience he had the first three or four days of his life, he just always eats quickly. Like even now with solids, he's just like, you know, shoving his food. We always had this home to slow down. Whereas like the second one, he had the milk right away because um, the breast tissue stays. So uh, my, for my second, he grew up with tons of supply of milk, like that he was never wanting. Um, and so he actually turned away from the boob uh, on his own at eight months. And he was just like, I want the bottle. Like, I don't want this. I don't want to do any work. You know, he's just very like, just, just give it to me in an easy form. So it's funny, like your, your experience with your kids too, is kind of the same way in a way, maybe yeah. there's something to it. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I was giving myself that this, this pressure of, you know, that I, I never had that breastfeeding or bonding experience with my first, that mm-hmm. I really wanted to achieve that with my second listeners who who had the pumping experience who exclusive pump or who those who actually went back to work early after giving birth you know how hard it is to be stuck with a pump mm-hmm. you know so i pump in up till maybe eight nine months for both my kids where is the weirdest place you've ever pumped hmm. in a car to me that's uh, weird i nursed in the car a lot i had the one with the um I had a external battery, so I held all uh, the gadgets with me. So I had to, yeah. you know, plug everything in. And that was after a, I had to attend a, a, a offsite meeting in Manhattan, and I mm. had all the pumping equipment with me. And on the way back, my my coworker was driving. I said, like, "Hey, don't mind me. I'll be back here pumping." <laughs> oh, don't- it's in motion. Okay, you didn't mention that. I thought it was like a parked car and you're pumping. Oh, no, 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 you guys were in motion. <laughs> in route to go back to the office. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's a good one um yeah I just uh, I I like to ask that question for moms who who pumped because I feel like we can all uh empathize with that experience of like trying to figure out the logistics of where you're gonna do it right. in this packed day when you're not in your usual groove with Charlotte it was just you know also difficult because she's such a small slow eater I had a preschooler running around I had to drive him you know either pick up drop off and I just couldn't wait for her to finish because then that would kind of screw up my well her meal time schedule yeah right because yeah. I mean my pediatrician always said oh you can always come back and finish but to me that's kind of like well it kind of screws up my whole day yeah right? if she's yeah. not full the first meal and then come back you don't you can't really 
gauge when her next feeding is going to be. Yeah, it would be like half an hour or it could be an hour. Like Right, exactly. So yeah. I end up I end up exclusive pumping too with her. <laughs> <laughs> you are like the focus market for these uh breast uh pump companies, you know. <laughs> So that's great that, I mean, it's great that you're able to do it. I applaud you because I feel like once my son did not want to get on the breast, immediately my supply dropped. It dipped. Like, I think it's something with like the hormones and how like the saliva touches the nipple. And as soon as he backed away from my boob, like in a week, I didn't, I, it was gone. All of it. You don't have to deal with engorgement and all that? No, I was like dry. And oh, the thing is- you. I was, the thing is, I was pushing myself to get more milk. Like I added in a pumping session since he stopped nursing on me and I wasn't getting enough out of my pump sessions. Like I noticed immediately um, the amount I was getting at each session was lower and lower. So I was like, oh, I got to add another session. And I was, I was doing it like two or three times at work. And I was like, what am I doing? Like, you know, like I'm spending so much time doing this at work and for what, two ounces and like whatever. So I just, I cut it quickly and I went straight to formula. Um, and I just defrosted whatever I had in the fridge. How did that feel for you? I mean, I know you said you kind of did a hybrid, right? You did the pumping and you supplemented with formula. Mm -hmm. What was your perspective as a dietitian? I mean, it was never lightly as a dietitian to, 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 uh, I guess do the opposite of what you were trained to do. Mm. Right. So, so in our, in our learning about nutrition and it's, it's everywhere, people are pro breastfeeding. Right. So mm -hmm. in your head, you're thinking, well, you're supposed to be this example for everybody mm -hmm. else to, to do what's, what's best for you, for your baby. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, it was something that I couldn't achieve mm -hmm. and I had to kind of let go of my ego and say, okay, it's okay that they're still getting the nutrition they need for, mm -hmm. for to thrive. And they're, and they're such great eaters that by the time they're doing solids, they're eating all the things that, that I wanted them to eat. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so you really have to put things in perspective. Are you going to stress yourself out because you cannot produce milk versus less stress on yourself and just be okay with the situation, knowing that your kids are thriving and they're mm -hmm. happy and they're, they're meeting all their milestones, right? Mm -hmm. That's something that professionally, it's hard to, it was very difficult to accept. But then at the end of the day, you put things in perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's a great message to anyone who's listening and who uh, may have to make that decision um, based on, you know, how, how the breastfeeding is going for them. Um, so I'd love to pivot a little bit towards, uh, more about your career and, um, specifically where you specialize. So I know you're a dietitian for, um, level two trauma hospital, right? Is that, yeah. Um, yeah. but can you speak a little bit more about that and what that entails? So career wise, I actually didn't start as a dietitian. I actually went to school of visual arts and studied graphic design in, in my undergraduate studies. Mm -hmm. Um, so I became interested in nutrition, health, you know, general wellness, you know, when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, you know, and because as a, you know, in my, in my immediate family, there's really low healthcare literacy. Like nobody in my family was ever involved in 
any type of healthcare for profession. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at the time when, because of the diagnosis, I had a lot of questions on, you know, why does it happen? How does it happen? How does, how does the treatment look like? What can we do about it? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a lot of science that I had to read. I, I read a lot. I Googled a lot. I looked at statistics. I looked at, you know, biochemistry, things that I may not even understand at the time, mm-hmm. but I was fascinated by the complexity of the body functions and our body's resilience, you know, and how food really takes on the role of, you know, medicine and how that mm-hmm. can kind of be healing in a way, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as, as a designer, for those of you who, who, you know, may, may know that, that area of work at the time, that was about, I'll say maybe 20 years ago already, as a designer, you know, most of the work there were contract work. There was no stability and there's it's no strictly nine to five. It's whenever you get your job done and you're expected to be at work the next day at nine o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. you know? So it wasn't the lifestyle that I wanted. I'm not a person who stay up, stays up all night, which, which I, I never was even in college. Mm-hmm. Um, so a friend of mine at the time, he was like, you know, why don't you look into something that you're interested in? You've been reading a lot about nutrition And why don't you look into um, programs? Maybe that could be a career. Mm. So I looked up and I said, oh, hey, there's a clinical nutrition program in a few of the universities in in, um, New York. Uh, And it it didn't require any any specialized exam to get in. So I was like, oh, let me just try. So I applied to, you know, maybe three or four. And I got into the uh, clinical nutrition program at mm-hmm. New York University, which I was happy about. Um, and all that while I was still working as a freelance designer on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, so the coursework was was two years of undergraduate coursework, which I had to make up because mm-hmm. um, this is a graduate program. And two years of graduate coursework that included one year internship which includes the practical training in healthcare setting. Mm, so okay. it was, it was uh, you know, full-time schooling on top of trying to make some money to pay for my tuition doing design yeah. work. So I was kind of straddling between, you know, both professions in a way just to get through, just to get by. And I love that you mentioned using food as like a medicine or, or, um, food having like a purpose. Um, I also find that growing up, there wasn't much of that education. Um, I mean, I was pretty fortunate that my parents cooked me a hot meal every day, um, out of fairly fresh ingredients. Like they went grocery shopping and stuff, but I wasn't taught anything in terms of like, these are your, you know, proteins, these are your like carbs, whatever. And you need to have a balance of this. Like, so I feel like I went to college and it was just like havoc, you know, um, <laughs> and yeah, I think we, about we how learned, I ate. We learned yeah. about the food pyramid growing up, but it just didn't click, mm-hmm. right? As a child mm-hmm. in element, I think you learned elementary or even middle school. Mm-hmm. You was like, oh, great. Those are great. But you, you, at least for me, I never connected dots of how that affects your body. It yeah. was purely, okay, what is a you know, what is a fruit? What's a vegetable? What's, you know, what is a carbohydrate? Right. But it just never occurred to me, you know, to, to apply that knowledge to the human body, even though, you know, we eat all those things, right. Yeah. 
<laughs> how you're using that with your children. Like, do you see that it comes out when you talk to them about food or anything like that? I try not to make it too complicated. Um, mm-hmm. My son has, I think in the beginning of, of his first grade, he, they were learning about the human body and he comes home and is able to recite to me the different systems in the body. And, and I just couldn't contain my excitement <laughs> you know, because I was like, oh my God, you actually understood, you know, what happened, what each system does mm-hmm. and what, and, and the result of everything that you do. But at the same time, I, I really try to not to make it so complicated where at a point where he may not understand what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So it is quite interesting that, you know, my son has taken that interest and he's mm-hmm. able to understand, which I'm very surprised at first grade, because I don't remember myself understanding any of that at first grade. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't remember that either, but I, I feel like I didn't take nutritional science until I was in like high school. I want to say. I didn't learn that in high school. And it wasn't even a required course. like you could choose to take nutritional science, which was like a glorified cooking class pretty much. Oh. Um, <laughs> so. No, but even physicians, you know, I work with physicians and they, they would tell us that in their training to become a medical doctor, they only had, I want to say 45 minutes or like something ridiculous, maybe a day. It's never, it's not a, like a full course, just like, mm-hmm. a, like a snapshot of, you know, what nutrition is and, and they bypass all that and they learn what they need to learn as medical doctors. So, so, so doctors, you know, they do not know, and they would admit to us hundred percent that they do not know nutrition at all. <laughs> With that said, what's a day in the life for you, like at work? So in a hospital, acute care is a little different from, let's say you tell me they went to see a nutritionist or a dietitian, right? In acute care, you have to be a registered dietitian. Mm-hmm. So, so the difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian is that a dietitian can call themselves a nutritionist or a dietitian, but a nutritionist cannot be a dietitian. So you can take a certification in nutrition and call yourself a nutritionist. Mm-hmm. But then you can't call yourself a dietitian because being a dietitian, you have to go through the proper schooling mm-hmm. and training. Just like doctors, they have to go through residency, right? Mm-hmm. We have to go through residency. Mm-hmm. We call it, you know, internship is a different word. But it's all practical experiences that you deal with, right? You deal with real patients, you have real conversations, and they have real chronic illnesses. Mm-hmm. So, so my typical day is I go in and all of us have assigned areas of the hospital mm-hmm. you know we do daily assessments on we assess the nutrition risks are they a high medium low risk for malnutrition and if they are high then what are the some of the things that we can address while they're admitted in a hospital really depending on where they are in a hospital how acutely ill they are they can be in the icu intubated sedated requiring respiratory support and how do you feed them nutrition when they are not even awake to drink a sip of water right so that's when my expertise comes to play in nutrition support where okay so if they are sedated they are not conscious i have to provide them nutrition in another way we call them intro nutrition support so think about babies will have formulas mm-hmm. right we have formulas for adults as well 
So they're liquid, just like baby formulas, and it's complete nutrition. Mm. We would calculate a patient's nutrition needs based on their height, their weight, their BMI, their illness, and what mm. they need at a time and, and how much sedations they're on. We calculate based on that to feed them enterally until they no longer need the respiratory support, they're awake, and they're safe to swallow. Then that's you know the other side of nutrition where we say, okay, now that you're healing, well, how can we improve your lifestyle, your food choices, and all that, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of the times you're working also with the families and the caregivers of these people, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially the ones who are intubated because they obviously can't, you can't interview them. I don't know about other dietitians and, and other clinical settings, but, you know, I, I really do try my best to call the family, obtain some histories, right? How they were eating, how their appetite was before coming in. Any history of weight loss, is it intentional, unintentional? Um, all that are really helpful in helping me to really provide a individualized care for them. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing. I also saw that you uh, focused specifically on cystic fibrosis patients um, for a while. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and um, kind of how you worked with those patients and those families? Yeah. So it is, you know, I had the opportunity to work with patients in the in this population for about eight years. Um, I, w- I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Someone was leaving and they said, hey, we need someone. So, and, I, and that was really early on in my career. I didn't really, I really didn't know what it was. I just said, oh, sure, I'll, I'll take on that role. It sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a, a specialized area of nutrition that I maybe be able to specialize in. Um, so throughout my coursework, you know, obtaining my degrees and all that, I had a particular interest in metabolic disorders, or we call inborn errors of metabolism, where your body cannot properly turn food into energy. Um, Mm. So that's really due to some genetic defects in your body, enzyme defects, which is is blocking the biochemical and metabolic pathways that's affecting Mm -hmm. your nutrient metabolism. So Mm -hmm. cystic fibrosis is one of them. And currently there are about 40,000 children and adults living with cystic fibrosis in the United States. Um, there are approximately a thousand new diagnoses of cystic fibrosis each year. It again is, it is a, uh, genetic disease. Mm -hmm. It is often diagnosed at newborn screenings, which Mm -hmm. is, um, very common in across the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. this specific disease affects the lung and the pancreas. So where the pancreas is responsible for uh, providing the enzymes for digestion. So -hmm. when you have a defect in that organ, that means these patients are not able to absorb the nutrients properly. Mm -hmm. So about 85 to 90% of individuals with cystic fibrosis have, we call it pancreatic insufficient, meaning either they're not producing at all or producing too little. Mm-hmm. Right, so they mm-hmm. c- they cannot um, properly absorb the food that they just eat. They just ate. Mm-hmm. So in this population, you need one copy of the defective gene from each parent to have a twenty five percent chance of having a cystic fibrosis baby. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people they may not know that their family history has 
mm-hmm. cystic fibrosis, they mm-hmm. may be walking around being a carrier and mm-hmm. end up marrying someone who's also a carrier. Mm-hmm. And when they have babies, they will have a 25% chance. So that's why most people don't know because yeah. when you're carriers of this gene, it doesn't yeah. affect anything in your body. Yeah. So when you don't know you're a carrier and you marry someone with who also doesn't know they are a carrier, they have that chance. And you mentioned that it's usually diagnosed um, in the newborn stage. Is it something they can pick up at during one of the checkups or blood tests? Um, yeah, yes. You had that big um, set of blood work that you had to do. Uh-huh. Um, that, that's where they're checking for genetic defects. Okay. I think for, well, I don't know if this is completely accurate, but I feel like for if you're 35 and older, you get that genetic screening as like, uh, you have to do it. And then for uh, pregnancies that are for younger women, I don't know if that's mandatory. I th- it, it varies by state. So okay. I didn't have that blood work done with my first, mm-hmm. but I had, it was mandatory when I had my second. So I didn't know if it was because of my age at the time, or is it that now is universal that everyone is gotcha. getting that done? I'm not certain, but yeah. I know that in the past, I would say the past 10, 20 years, you know, they've been working hard. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation have been working hard to get that as part of the newborn screening, just so that um, when, when these moms are pregnant, they already know whether they have a baby with CF or not mm-hmm. while they're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there are... Uh, moms who who may decide to have an abortion because you know the obvious reason um there are moms who you know decide that it didn't phase them and they said it's okay and and they're willing to have this baby and and deal with whatever it comes with mm-hmm. right so so most people already know even that that they have a cf baby or not even some families that i worked with in this clinic when they decide to have their second child, knowing now that they are, their first is a cystic fibrosis baby, they decide to do IVF and they mm-hmm. pick out the genes, the ones that don't have the genes or just mm-hmm. the carrier and not the one gotcha. with cystic fibrosis. What are the side effects? Like I know you explained it's that you don't have the right enzymes or you don't have enough enzymes to break down the food and get the energy. So what are the side effects of that for, for someone with CF? So failure to thrive, right? So historically, I would say about 10 years prior, life expectancy for this group of children are averagely at 20 years old. Mm-hmm. So I would say about 10 years ago, they started, they've done obviously a lot of research and, and they came up with um, medicines that's going to treat the specific gene defect so every mm-hmm. every cystic fibrosis child or adult their gene mutation is different so there's so many genes out there that they have to figure out medications that's going to work with that specific mutation so about 10 years ago they came up with a drug like that which changed lives many lives and, and years later, they using that and, and following that data where it, it really was life-changing and gave so many new lives. 
right? Extended lives in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so these kids that they then develop more medications that addresses other gene mutations mm-hmm. in this group of patients. Mm-hmm. So far, I think they come out, you know, a handful of them and they are all patients who, are, who qualify for these medications are all doing very, very well. I've had patients who um, come off all treatments because oh, wow. these medications are working. Wow. So those who are pancreatic insufficient, they have to be on pancreatic enzymes from day one mm-hmm. of life. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're not, they're not going to be able to absorb even just milk that they, they just drank. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to thrive. They're not going to grow. So um, from day one, we have to you know, do a lot of counseling with these families mm-hmm. to make sure that you know, they understand the importance of nutrition and how we can um, combat the uh, malnutrition aspect of, of this disease. Right, so we start them on pancreatic enzymes. We teach moms how to administer them on a spoon. So imagine a newborn on a spoon, yeah. right? What to look for, you know, and and wow. how and we deal with how to dose. It, it is a medication, so we have to help them understand. Sometimes, yes, we give you a recommended dose, but you may have to titrate up and down depending on how your baby is doing. So we have mm-hmm. to have that period of time where we're kind of hand-holding the mom. Yeah. So there's a lot to deal with for a new mom, especially those who didn't have a, like a, a like a first baby or a previous yeah, first baby. time. Like I feel like it was already overwhelming. Um, and then now there's this added layer um, of, of complexity. Right. Why a spoon and why not that like little syringe thing I've seen people use colostrum for? So they are, it's a capsule. If you think about like a regular vitamin mm. that you can open up. Oh, okay. It's in the... It has... So instead of powder, it's actually beads, little beads oh, that okay. that replaces the enzymes that digest protein, fats, and carbohydrates. Okay. And it has to be administered with an acid. Otherwise, oh. it's, it's going to um, be ineffective. Is made in a way where it can survive in an acidic environment. So we always tell them to put on applesauce and yeah. put on spoon and spoon feed your baby. That's so weird, giving that to your newborn. Yes. I don't know. It's, it's a weird concept, but I, I mean, necessary. But, you know, just the thought of giving my newborn applesauce is, is wild. Right, because, <laughs> I mean, think about it. They're, they're newborn. They're barely mastering, you know, suckling, yeah. right? Now you're, at, you're teaching them how to eat something off a spoon. Yeah. And, and if you remember when, when you first start your, your baby on solids, that, that first spoon, they're still pushing yeah. out their top. Yeah. yeah. Right? right. So imagine like a newborn learning how to do that. Oh my gosh. So it is out of stress. Definitely. Right. We have to, and these beads, if you leave them in the inside of their baby's mouth, it can um, cause ulcers too, because oh my it's, gosh. We have to teach the moms, okay, make sure you check your cheeks, make sure there's nothing in there. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot. And, and a lot of times these moms would tell me, you know, can you tell me what a normal poop look like? Because their poops are going to look different from a normal baby yeah. because yeah. of the mal- malabsorption. So, you know, and I do get a lot of poop pictures. I do get a lot <laughs> of, you know, things like that, that as a dietitian yeah. that, you know, I never thought I had to be part of that, but, you know, <laughs> But with this population, I Someone's do. Someone's got to look at it. Yeah. 
what the doctors do, but you know, at the end of the day, it, fall, it falls on the dietitian because it's you know, nutrition related, right? We are, we want to make yeah. sure that you know they are absorbing what they're whatever they're eating. So I get a yeah. lot of those questions. They have a lot of you know GI issues. They're bloating. They're there are a lot of discomfort, you know, those yeah. things that that we constantly have to, I don't want to say handhold the mom, but we want to give them support. Yeah. Because especially the new, the new moms, because they don't have a reference to go by. What is it yeah. supposed to what is the baby supposed to feel? Right. And and that's when I, I always tell my patients, I say, you know, you because I, I felt like I was a mom before I became a real mom. Because these babies, I see them from newborn to sometimes up yeah. until, you know, they're in high school, right? Yeah. So, so I always tell me, you know, I I feel like I was a mom before I became a mom, and then now that that w- once I became a mom, I tell my patients that you know that they made me a better mom because I knew exactly what to do, mm-hmm. right? But but yeah. at the time, of course, my my recommendation to them before being a mom is different from after being yeah, a mom. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Before so being a mom, everything is textbook. Right. Yeah. After I was like, you know what? Put things in perspective. What you're worrying about, don't worry about it. <laughs> <That's, Yeah. laughs> focus on, you know, what's gonna help your baby thrive. Don't worry about things being healthy. I mean th- this group of, of kids, they need almost double the calories than the regular babies anyway. I said, don't worry. We'll, we'll deal with that once you mastered how to take care of their cystic fibrosis. Then we can talk about meal plans and, and mm-hmm. you know, what what I would recommend or, or some strategies of getting them to eat. You know, mm-hmm. the, the complexities of these these kids with, with, we call them special needs, is that we're not only taking care of the the baby or the child or sometimes adults, but also we have to take care of their families because they mm-hmm. need the support from us so that they can yeah. provide what their child needs. Yeah. Right? What is something that you think people can do to support a family that may have a child with CF? So I think meal trains sometimes help. Um, mm-hmm. I've had um, newborns where the mom was just so overwhelmed that I think her her friends uh, created a meal train for her, not for the baby, mm-hmm. but for her. Yeah. Um, it's tricky with this population because there's also a an if infection component to their okay. disease. Their lungs are really um, susceptible to we call them bugs, bugs that, or, or viruses or bacteria that may not affect a normal person, but it will affect a person with cystic fibrosis because mm-hmm. their lining, their, their um, mucus lining in their bodies are so thick that mm-hmm. any pathogen that comes in the way, it gets stuck in there oh. and then duplicates. So oh, wow. with this population, you know, these kids, they, a lot of times, especially in their first few years of life before they go to school is that they like, live Well, the parents try to keep them in this bubble where, mm. you know, they cannot have too many friends yeah. because they come and you don't know what they have. Yeah. Um, a lot of hand washing, you know, with the beginning of the pandemic, I, I remember when everyone was sort of 
you know, caught off guard of, you know, what this coronavirus is going to be, this population was ready because yeah. they, they knew about hand washing. They knew about ma- masking. They knew about, you know, keeping six feet apart because that's what they do every single day. Mm-hmm. So yeah. to support them, I think the uh, Sister Fibrosis Foundation, they, they have annual fundraisers across the country. Every area, they have their own um, walkathons or grace drives, we call them. And all the proceeds go to their research. And, and, and like I mentioned before, the research is really researching the medications that's going to help all the, all the defective genes that they have mm-hmm. and which targets the, the specific gene that's affecting their life. And I remember going to the medical conferences every year and they always talk about, you know, that they hope one day CF can stand for cure found. Mm-hmm. I will definitely include that in the description of this podcast if you can share yeah definitely link. um so thank you so much for sharing all your insights on uh cystic fibrosis and also your perspective of just food being a medicine and being so important uh to thrive i'd like to give you a minute to share a personal or professional message to anyone who might be listening um so i'll let you take it away yeah so so like i mentioned before i think i'm a a better clinician, a better mother because of my patients. So I encourage working with a healthcare provider that you're comfortable talking to and really have open conversations with them of, of you know, your concerns. You know, open conversations will facilitate a more individualized care. We can only do so much as much as you are willing to tell us, right? So we may have the knowledge and experience in our fields, but we don't know everything. And at the end of the day, we're willing to figure it all out together with you. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing the important work you do. If you're tuning in, I hope you take this as your sign to advocate for yourselves and to view your relationship with healthcare providers as a collaborative effort. See you next time on Amanita Minute.